Dear Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts this morning be pleasing in your sight, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Please bless our meditation on your word today. Bless our hearts as your word hits our hearts. Send your Holy Spirit to us to strengthen us and equip us to live for you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, brothers and sisters in Jesus, their gods were too small. Their gods were too small. So it is not that the Athenians had any shortage of gods or goddesses. I mean, they had a god of the earth and a god of the sea and a god of the sky and a god of the underworld and they had a goddess of love and they had a goddess of wisdom and they had a god of war and that is only half of the twelve Olympian gods let alone all the other side gods and demigods with every purpose that you could imagine. In fact, in our reading today, the Apostle Paul describes that the Athenians even had an altar to an unknown god, an unknown god. And here is what that was about. Like, if you were in a shipwreck, or if you survived a robbery, or if your house collapsed and you weren't in it, right, and you escaped, you had a near-death experience, obviously some god had saved you. But if you didn't say a prayer to Apollo or Zeus or anybody during it, you didn't know which god it was. So the question is, which god do you want to thank? You don't want to offend a god by thanking the wrong one or not thanking the right one. And so just in case, to cover all your bases, it's kind of like we thank all the rest of our donors, right? You had an altar to the unknown god, just in case there was one that you didn't know about, just in case there was one that you forgot. The Athenians had no shortage of gods. But their gods were just too small. So if you enjoy reading Greek and Roman mythology, as I happen to enjoy reading it for some reason, I don't know why, I've always been fascinated by it. If you enjoy reading mythology, you might notice some familiar things about the gods that they had. And these familiar things would be jealous passions, affairs and intrigues and dramas, wars and betrayals and deceit, all happening between the gods, and above all, competition. It's like all the gods were striving and straining and puffing themselves up, trying to prove that they were the biggest and the best. The question is, why would gods act like that? The answer is, well, because people act like that. This is how we think. This is how we live. We're very insecure. We are very insecure. And the Greek and Roman gods were really just amped up divine versions of us. Divine versions of human beings. And so as you think about this, it's kind of ironic in a sad sort of a way, right? The Bible tells us that in the beginning, when God made people, he made human beings in his image. And now, fallen into sin, what have human beings done? Now we're making our gods into our image. Right, so that the human gods are nothing more than just amped up versions of human beings. And as such, these kinds of gods are just too small. They don't offer an adequate solution for things like sin and guilt. And, and how can they, when they're so busy with their own affairs and wars and drama up there that they can't even pay attention half the time to people down here? And those kind of gods offer no solution for death and for what comes after death. 
Again, if you're as fascinated by Greek and Roman mythology as I happen to be, you'd know that unless you're like a super champion hero in that world, you probably are having a gray, misty, kind of a boring afterlife. The bottom line is the Greek and Roman gods were just really not all that helpful to people. In general, as a human being, you're kind of on your own with these distracted gods doing their own thing. And that's why even in a city like Athens, with all their altars and all their gods, the real god was already philosophy and scientific knowledge and human wisdom. This was the real focus because the Olympian gods, the Greek and Roman gods, they are too small. They're too small. All right, so into this world comes Paul. And Paul is ready to present an entirely different worldview about God. Paul is ready to, you know, share the gospel. And he's invited to a meeting at the Areopagus, which is a big deal. It's, you know, the, the cultural center of Athens. So, so how is he going to do it? How is Paul going to share his faith in a way that's not going to be confusing and, and turn everybody off right away? And so he thinks about it, and, and here is how Paul begins. This people of Athens, I can see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So we'll talk about that, but as Paul even starts, do you notice the, the verbs that he's using, the action words? He's saying, I see, I walked around, I found. In other words, when Paul first got to Athens, his first move was not to go to the city center and start telling everybody what they should believe and do. Instead, his first move was to watch and listen and learn. Paul went to Athens and his first goal was to understand where people were coming from so he could meet people where they were. And then and only then, maybe he could find a connection point to the gospel of Jesus. And sure enough, he found his connection point. He says, I'm walking around your town and I found this altar with the inscription to an unknown God. So you're willing to know something about God that you haven't learned before. Let me tell you about that God that you haven't learned about before. There is a God who is so much greater than most people realize. So Paul goes on and maybe we imagine what else could have been involved in this address that he gave. The Bible is surely only giving us part of it. You imagine Paul saying, imagine that there's one God who stands alone over everything. He's got ultimate power, ult ultimate majesty. He controls the land and the sea and the sky. He just controls all of it. He has no competitors. Uh, he has no squabbles with other gods. His reign is absolute. And then he also doesn't need the sacrifices of human beings to soothe his fragile ego. He does not live in temples built by human hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, it's he himself who gives everyone life and breath and everything else. This big, powerful God doesn't need people. And yet, he is so big and powerful and absolute in his control over the big things that he even has the ability to look into and control the small things, and he does. Unlike the Greek and Roman gods that are all preoccupied with their petty drama, don't pay attention to human beings half the time, this true God is paying intimate attention to every little detail of human life. From one man he made every nation of men, and he determined the time set for them and exact places where they were going to live. And God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him 
though he's not far from any of us. In summary, what Paul is saying is, imagine a God who is so powerful and so secure with himself that instead of puffing himself up and proving himself to be the best, he's willing to shrink himself down and make himself small. In fact, he's willing for all intents and purposes to make himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being found in human likeness, and then being found in appearance as a man, he humbles himself even further and becomes obedient to death, even a death on a cross. And the shame of that in the Greek and Roman world, that God would make himself so small. So Paul is saying, I know it seems laughable to think of a God who's both that powerful and that loving down to the intimate details, but you don't have to imagine that there's a God like this. Paul's saying, go read the Jewish scriptures and you will see that this is the thing that has been prophesied for thousands of years. Paul's saying, go investigate about a man named Jesus of Nazareth. Ask about his resurrection from the dead. And you're going to find that all of these things are true. God did this. This happened. And Paul says, I know it. Because after Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead, he appeared also to me. So that essentially, is Paul's address to the citizens of Athens. He's found a very careful, nuanced way to say, your gods are too small. The true God is so much bigger, and, and he's the only God that you need. So, the philosophers and the intellectual elite of Athens, like, this was a pretty tough crowd, and yet they were very impacted by Paul's message. Uh, we read after our text that they invited Paul to come and speak to them again, and we're told that several prominent members of the Greek ruling council became believers in Jesus. So that was Paul joining Jesus on his mission in Athens. What does it look like for you and me to join Jesus on his mission in Atlanta? What does it look like for us to share the gospel in our world? Well, as we look at our world, as we listen and learn, like Paul was listening and learning in Athens, immediately there's something that becomes clear. And what it is, is that still today, our gods are too small. Today, our gods are too small. So we ask this question, what role does God or gods play in our society anymore? It's not the same as Athens, where you've got thousands of temples all over the city. Um, what has God been reduced to today? I think for some people, God has been reduced to karma. God is basically a force that rewards you with good when you do good and that maybe punishes you when you do bad. Like, God is a force that makes sure what goes around comes around. And that's it. Maybe for others, God is reduced to wishful thinking, um, a good luck charm, thoughts and prayers. Uh, maybe God is, like, God is in the first autumn leaf that falls. God is in the first sip of your coffee God is in the unexpected kindness of a friend. He's all around you. You just have to look for him. But that's all. He's not anything more than that. Uh, or maybe, for still others, God has just been reduced and reduced until he's explained out of the picture completely. And you think of maybe for some people in our ultra-scientific modern world, the idea is, like back in the day before we knew all this stuff, people needed all these myths and gods to explain the workings of the universe that we didn't know about. Now that we know so much about how things work. Now we don't need those myths and those silly gods anymore. 
Those are just a few examples of the gods, or the lack thereof, of gods in our society. Um, but there is a problem with all these gods, with all of these worldviews, and it's this, they're too small. They don't offer a solution for sin and guilt. Like, if you mess up in life and you're deeply ashamed of yourself, karma's going to come get you. That's it. If you mess up in life, you're staying up at night, you're torn up by guilt over something that you've done, you know, the first sip of your cup of coffee in the morning is not going to be enough to handle that, that crisis that you have. And what's more than sin and guilt, you know, today's gods also don't offer a solution for death and for what comes after death. And they don't fill what we talked about last week, that eternity-shaped hole that God has put in every human heart. Still today, our gods are too small. So, into this culture comes not Paul, but us. And we're ready. We are ready to present a totally different worldview, a totally different way of thinking about God. We are ready to share the gospel. But before we go out and tell everybody that their gods are too small, we should take a minute and ask ourselves, is our God too small? And here's what I mean by that. When we think and talk about God, when we think and talk about joining Jesus on his mission, do we do that with a correct understanding of how big and powerful our God actually is? Or do we, in our own minds, reduce God to something weaker and smaller than he truly is, which makes us less confident in him, which makes us feel more pressure on ourselves? And as we reduce God in our minds, we start to say things like this, my neighbor's never going to care about God. My, my coworker would never listen to anything that I would say about God. My, this person would never be a religious person. But even as we say those kinds of things about other people and assume these things about other people, what are we doing? Are we discounting the possibility that Jesus has already been working in the lives of people before we ever met them and entered into their life? This, in fact, is exactly what Paul is mentioning in the portion of our reading that we're zoning in on today. He says, From one man God made every nation of men, and he determined the time set for them and the exact places that they were going to live. God did this so they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, although he is not far from any of us. So, two key points from this verse. The first one is this, that word of, of reaching out and then trying to find that Greek word. That's the word of like when you're walking through your living room at night and you know you're, you're trying to get to the refrigerator and you know there's a chair in there, uh, but it's totally dark and you can't remember where the chair is. So you're kind of like, you know it's there and you're just trying to make sure so you don't smash your toe and have a sore toe for the next two weeks. So that feeling where you know it's there, you're not quite sure where. That is what God has built into the human heart. This is what all human beings are doing. We need something bigger than ourselves. We need something lasting and meaningful. We need to know that there's a higher power. We need to know that, that things are going to be okay. We need these things. St. Uh, Augustine had the famous quote where he said, Oh Lord, you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. We need God. And so your neighbor, your coworker, your friend is feeling around searching for God. Maybe they would never say it in those words. But this is how God has made the human heart to feel around and try to find that greater thing that we need. So point number one, your neighbor is already searching for something greater. 
Point number two, not only is your neighbor seeking God, whether he knows it or not, but God is seeking your neighbor. Right? We learn from other parts of the Bible that Jesus died on the cross for all the sins of the people in the whole world, including your neighbor. We learn from other parts of the Bible that God wants all people in the world to be saved and to come to the knowledge of his truth, including your neighbor. And now in this verse, we learn that God is not far from any one of us, including your neighbor. So where is he? Where is God in your neighbor's life? Might it be possible that where God is in your neighbor's life is in you? Might that be possible? I think that in our time and in our culture, that's not only possible, it's likely. In many cases, you may be the only active, engaged Christian that your neighbor knows. And maybe, you know, for a long time, they've assumed certain things about Christians. Christians are pushy. Christians are judgmental. Christians are arrogant. Christians are bigoted. But you're not one of those things. And you're their neighbor. Has it ever occurred to you or have you ever thought that maybe as God guides your neighbor's life and chooses the time that they're going to live in and the exact spot that they're going to live, that maybe God has aligned your neighbor's life so that they can connect paths with you? How does that make you feel if God might be doing that for your neighbor right now, if God might be present to your neighbor through you right now? How does that make you feel? If it makes us feel pressure and it maybe does, then maybe again we're making our God too small. We think about this, if God is big enough and powerful enough to carry out his plan to perfection for every single person, then he is big enough and powerful enough to do it any way he wants, including choosing to let other Christians have the opportunity to be part of the mission work. Because after all, this is what God has done in every single one of our own stories. Every single one of our own stories has involved other people and how God used them to connect us to his love. Maybe it was parents and grandparents who, who taught you about Jesus' love at a young age and, and read Bible stories to you at night and, and brought you to Sunday school. Maybe it was later in life. It was a co-worker, a friend, a neighbor. It was a pastor who shared the gospel with you and explained to you about Jesus' love. Maybe it was a book that you read that someone wrote. Maybe it was a sermon that you heard that someone spoke. But whatever the case may be, God did not just cause rain to fall down out of heaven and a raindrop is called faith and it just fell down and landed in your heart. God could have done that, but he chose not to. He chose to use people. He chose to intersect your life with other people because he wanted them to be able to have the joy of participating in the mission of the shared growth of faith and of more and more people realizing how much God loves us. God included other people in your story so they could experience that joy. And the point of our, our message today is that God wants you to experience that joy too. And you think to our second reading, the Ephesians one, we heard that last verse about how God has prepared now not your neighbor's life, but your life. It says, We are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. It's just such a beautiful picture. I've always loved this verse talking about good works. Because you're like, how can I find good works in my life, ways that I could serve God and thank him for, for what he's done for me? How will I find good things to do? I can't not find them. I'm tripping over them 
because God has laid good opportunities that I could do all over my life, opportunities to show his love and reflect it to others. In a similar way, we don't have to go searching for people to tell about Jesus. Who could I possibly find to share the good news about Jesus? Because there's people all around us. God is every day causing our paths to intersect so cleanly with people that we're just banging right into each other, especially in an urban area. There's people everywhere. The only thing we need to do is pay attention and recognize that God is always working every single day to try to give us the joy and the opportunity of getting to be a game-changing factor in someone else's life and introducing them to an idea of God that is way bigger than they had ever thought of before. Next week, we'll talk about how it sounds and how it feels to actually do it. To talk about, God, talk about God with our neighbor. And it's not as scary and as hard as we think. We'll talk about that next week. Today, we simply realize God is already working in your neighbor's life. Because he's put you in your neighbor's life. Amen. Amen. And now the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard and keep your hearts in your minds, through faith in Christ Jesus, your Savior. Amen.